This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Let's talk a little bit about that Louis Gohmert lawsuit. I think there is a lot of confusion about what is going on. And if you're just tuning in to this whole story, Vice President Pence has now been sued by Texas Representative Louis Gohmert and a bunch of other Republicans, including all 11 of Arizona's GOP electors. And a lot of people may say, why in the world would you have Republicans suing Mike Pence? Well, Kelly Ward, who is the head of the Arizona Republic Party, Party, a Republican Party and part of this lawsuit calls this a friendly lawsuit. Now, what does that mean? A friendly lawsuit. What they basically want to do, as the Epic Times has pointed out, is they want to grant Mike Pence exclusive authority to decide which electoral college votes to count on January 6th. And this all goes back to a couple of different issues. This is how The Hill describes this. Pence was sued in a, as they call it, far-fetched bid that appeared aimed at overturning President-elect Joe Biden's election win. The lawsuit focuses on Pence's role in the January 6th meeting of Congress to count states' electoral votes and finalize Biden's victory over Trump. Typically, the VP's role in presiding over the meeting is a largely ceremonial one governed by an 1887 federal law known as the Electoral Count Act. But this lawsuit asks a federal judge in Texas to strike down the law as unconstitutional. And then they go even further. They ask the court to grant the vice president the authority to effectively overturn Trump's defeat in key battleground States And it comes down to Pence being able to determine which slate of electors votes actually count or if neither count for any particular state. Now, you go to Gohmert's website and he's put out an entire statement on this Pence lawsuit. Here's what he says. The 2020 presidential election was one we'd expect to see in a banana republic not the United States of America. In fact, the rampant fraud and unconstitutional actions that took place were so egregious that seven contested states, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, New Mexico, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, all sent dueling slates of electors to Congress. So there you have a problem, right? This puts Pence in a position where some argue he has to choose between morality and the law. And Gohmert says that is not the case. It is also critical to note that as many formerly in the mainstream media, now the alt-left media, continue to say that every court has said there is no evidence of fraud that is disingenuous, deceitful, and flat-out dishonest. The truth is that no court so far has had the morality and courage to allow evidence of fraud to be introduced in front of it. So they're moving forward with this. And he says, it's for this reason I and the other plaintiffs have filed this complaint for expedited declaratory and emergency injunctive relief to seek judgment from the court on the VP's authority when presiding over the Senate during the joint session. We're asking the court to uphold the powers laid out in the Constitution, which grant the VP the exclusive authority and sole discretion in determining which electoral votes to count. As outlined, the Electoral Count Act is unconstitutional. 
because it directs Vice President Pence to legitimize electoral votes in violation of the Electors Clause and limits or eliminates his 12th Amendment authority to determine which slates of electors should be counted and which, if any, may not be counted. This is fundamental because no statute can constitutionally supply rules to the extent that such statute violates the U.S. Constitution. Now, you might be asking yourself, how is this being received in the mainstream media? Let's take CNN for an example. Allison Camerata kicks things off here with John Harwood, the White House correspondent. This is kind of a very telling little segment. This is cut one. That's Congressman Louis Gohmert, who is suing uh, Vice President Pence to overturn the will of the American people. And it's going to go before a Trump-appointed federal judge in Texas. Will this be dismissed out of hand, or is there any way that this gums up the works somehow? Uh, This lawsuit is a crackpot lawsuit filed by a crackpot member of Congress, and it's going straight in the trash can. Don't know how fast. Maybe there's some preliminary step in which a a Trump-sympathetic judge uh, moves it along. But there is no scenario in which the vice president of the United States of the sitting administration can on his own steam reverse the electoral votes of states that voted uh, somewhere else. It's simply not the American system. Um, But this indicates the lengths to which uh, some members of the Republican Party are willing to go to try to uh, either uh, performatively demonstrate to Trump supporters that they're with them and willing to fight, uh, to raise money from them, to gain a profile, Uh, Or maybe some of them are actually crazy enough to believe that these things are possible, but they're not possible. And that's why Joe Biden's going to become president on January 20th. Nothing like some fair and balanced news coverage. Allison Camerata. Well, what they want to do is overturn the will of the American people. No concerns there whatsoever for the possibility of fraud. No concerns over the fact that we've had dead voters. No concerns over the fact that you have all kinds of skullduggery going on in various locations across those seven states. None of that matters because this was the will of the people. I at CNN can tell you it was the will of the people. No problems here. Nothing to see here. The world's blowing up. Fiery, but mostly peaceful protests are taking place in Kenosha as our reporter stands in front of a burning building. Nothing to see here. Nothing to worry about whatsoever. It's a crackpot lawsuit. And did you notice how she asks, will this be dismissed out of hand or will it just gum things up? Those are the two options. Or maybe the two options are what happened here that we have this constitutional crisis, which, by the way, we do. And they all want to make it go away. They have a place they want to take this country and it's down the drain. They have no interest in real journalism. They have no interest in digging into the facts. They're the people who are all in on Biden-Harris from the very beginning. I don't have to revisit all of it with you because you were there for it all. But let's go back to this whole question uh, that is being you know, brought up in this lawsuit because these things are important. Going back to the National Constitution Center, they have a good piece on explaining how Congress settles electoral college disputes. So what will happen? The next public step, as we know, in this election process will be January 6th. Congress meets to validate the election. If there are objections, a formerly obscure law as they say, will be consulted to settle disputes about electors. The 538 electors representing presidential candidates declared winners in the state contests. They met to cast their electoral votes. So right now you have Biden at 306, Trump at 232. You need 270 to be the winner. Federal law 
requires the states to deliver certified electoral college results to the vice president serving as president of the Senate, as we know. This has to happen and did happen by December 23rd. Then you have to have a joint meeting of Congress as required by the 12th Amendment to count the electoral votes and declare the winners. That's what's happening on January 6th. Now, objections at that meeting about electors will be settled using a process established by the Electoral Count Act of 1887. This is a law that has its origins in the contested presidential election of 1876 between Samuel Tilden and Rutherford B. Hayes. Several states during that election sent rival electoral ballots to be considered by Congress, which lacked a procedure to decide among contested slates of electors. So they had the short term solution, which was a special 15 person commission to decide the election. It ended up going to Rutherford B. Hayes. And in the end, the participating Supreme Court justices cast the deciding votes after the House and the Senate members voted along party lines. The Electoral Count Act of 1887 and several federal statutes address questions about contested electors that land in Congress. What's happening in this Gomert lawsuit is they are questioning the constitutionality of this law and saying this is not what we are to follow. We are actually to follow the 12th Amendment and we should leave it to the House of Representatives and the wording of the 12th Amendment to decide whether or not we should actually have Biden as our next president. And you can go back and you can read. I don't have time to read through the whole thing, but it does make reference to the House of Representatives choosing immediately by ballot the president if certain conditions are met. And in choosing the president, the vote shall be taken by states. The representation from each state having one vote. This has been raised before as a possibility. It is a long shot. I don't have a lot of hope because of what's been going on in the courts, but it certainly is a good thing to keep fighting this because I don't believe for a second there wasn't massive fraud. And frankly, I don't think you believe that either. Pray for this lawsuit and pray for the United States of America. There's a lot more to come on Janet Meffer today. Stay with us. Hi, this is Janet Mefford, here to tell you about the Ministry of Preborn. That ultrasound changed everything for me. It really did. That made it all worthwhile to know that I was going to have a little blessing. And when she got here, it was just, oh my gosh. You just heard a real-life testimony from a woman whose life was changed by the Ministry of Preborn. You see, when a young woman considering abortion sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she almost always chooses life for her preborn baby. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. Preborn steps into the darkest corners and finds women in need to help them choose life. The mission of Preborn is to glorify Jesus Christ by equipping pregnancy centers nationwide to help save lives and impact moms and babies for the kingdom of God. Preborn leads the country in placing ultrasound machines and counseling women while also helping to lead them to saving faith in Jesus. In 2020 alone, over 31,000 babies were saved and over 7,000 women came to know the Lord. I got to hear and see my baby for the first time. Hearing the heartbeat made me cry. <laughs> I was certain I was going to keep my baby forever. Would you join with us at Janet Mefford today to help preborn help women choose life for 350 babies by the end of January? All gifts are tax deductible and 100% of your gift goes toward life. One ultrasound session costs $28. 
A gift of $140 will sponsor five ultrasounds. But any gift of any size will help. $100, $200, $1,000, or maybe you could even help buy an ultrasound machine for $15,000. But whatever you can give will help. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229. Again, call toll-free, 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. 2020 has been a big year for fake news, which means it's also been a huge year for liberal media partisanship. And it's arguably even worse than it's ever been. But the good folks over at Newsbusters have been keeping track of the lies and the spin. And so we're going to check in now to get the lowdown on the worst of 2020 when it came to obnoxious liberal bias. And here to help us do that is Dan Gaynor, Vice President for Tech Watch Business and Culture at the Media Research Center. Dan, great to have you with us. How are you? Uh, doing well. It's a year I think we all want to put in the rearview mirror. I just hope that 2021 is better. And uh, as a sort of a professional cynic, I'm not so sure it will be. <laughs> I couldn't agree more with you. And we're really grateful for all the hard work that you guys do because you had a lot of material to work with this year. It must have been difficult to kind of parse it down into something that was just uh, you know reduced to a couple of stories. But w- what would you say was the worst media moment of liberal bias in 2020? If you could find one, well, I mean, I, it comes down to there are two stories of the year. For most Americans, the two stories are COVID nineteen and the election. Yeah, I think that's pretty well summarized. So I would actually say versions of both of those. COVID nineteen, uh, you know, the media have been all over the map, uh, getting the story wrong, manipulating readers and viewers. Uh, not willing to admit their mistakes, so they lose their credibility, and now they actually want to you know, actually propagandize to us and hide problems with the vaccines because, again, they don't want, you know, that's part of their agenda now is to force everybody to get a vaccine, yeah. which, you know, so, I mean, they've been wrong to the point where, if you remember, they were promoting Nancy Pelosi, come on down to Chinatown yeah. back in February. Yep. They were they were all complaining to Trump that oh Trump was xenophobic because he wanted to restrict travel from China. Uh, on March fifth, uh, CNN held a town hall where Dr. Sanjay Gupta not only warned against wearing masks, he says they were dangerous. That's all like forgotten. Yeah. You know, it's like oh yeah, we were right the whole time. Trump didn't take this. To, excuse me, you guys have forgotten a lot. Put a lot of stuff in the memory hole. Oh yeah. And then. And then the flip side, because of the election, we saw the media suppress negative news about Biden and positive news about Trump to the point where we did a analysis, a, a polling of post-election polling of Biden voters. And what we found is that there were eight different stories that single-handedly would have tipped the election to Trump. Wow. Just Single-handedly, yeah. The, you know, the worst of those, of course, is the Hunter Biden scandal. Oh yeah. And this is this is something most ordinary people should be able to understand. I mean, this is not complicated. You had a story broken by one of the nation's oldest news organizations, the New York Post, that uh, alleged scandalous activity of Hunter Biden, the, the former vice president's son, where he's involved in actions um, in Ukraine. And in, with communist China, now, yep. communist China, of course, the enemy of ours, even though the media don't like to admit it. And, you know, that 
story was suppressed by Facebook, who flat out came out and said, oh, we're, not, we're going to limit the, the reach of the story, even though it, that violated their own policies to the point where they, have, they deal with this left-wing fact-checking group, uh, the International Fact-Checking Network, and even they said this violated the policies. Crazy. And then Twitter suspended the New York Post for 17 days, uh, to the point where both Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey, the CEOs of the two companies, get called on the carpet in front of the U.S. Senate. Uh, not that they care, but here's where the rubber really meets the road. Traditionally, when there's an element of censorship, the media usually step up and cover the story to, to protect the outlet that was censored. Yeah. Instead, they did the exact opposite. They embraced the censorship and suppressed the story to the point where a huge number of Biden voters had never even heard of the story. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, and I don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but there was that poll taken after the election of the large number of people who might not have voted for Biden had they known about the Hunter Biden scandal. I mean, this is way beyond bias. I mean, I remember... 10, 20 years ago when we started talking about bias and earnest, and you guys have been talking about it all along, but this is just complicity. This is cover-up. This is vast corruption in the media, and it, it really raises the question of whether or not it really will be reversible. Well, I, certainly it took us decades to get here. For those of us who are older, there was a seminal moment. It's not the first element of bias, but a seminal moment where Walter Cronkite, who was the most respected newsman in the world, stepped aside from his allegedly neutral position and told people that a battle that the U.S. had just fought and won, the Tet Offensive, uh, was in fact a failure and the U.S. couldn't win the war in Vietnam. And that was more than 50 years ago. And the media have been spiraling downward ever since. And the top executives of the companies, you know, that sort of, that was the big shift to the left for major media. I mean, huge shift at that point, the Vietnam War. And then the people who came in in that era and in the Watergate era then ended up leading these news organizations to the point where there's now so left-wing that I would say the third worst event was what the New York Times did this year. They ran an op-ed by Senator Tom Cotton, where Cotton was calling for Trump to send in the military to deal with uh, you know, rioting, which he had nationwide, which the media have just completely forgotten about. Oh, that never really happened. Right. Uh, you know, to, to rescue the cities. And... The woke staff, the New York Times, freaked out about it so much that they, uh, they started apologizing for it. Then they said they weren't going to run it in print. And then the upshot is they fired the editor and they fired another uh, staffer and reassigned another staffer. I mean, it's basically a clean house. The woke, far-left lunatics who the young people at the, at the paper have completely taken over at this yeah, point. It's gross. It's not even journalism. It hasn't been journalism in a long time. And, it, you know, we are the people who really suffer for that because at a time when we desperately need to have, you know, fair news and balanced news sources, we're running out of them. You know, something else, Dan, that I wanted to run past you, I, I know we could do an entire show on CNN alone, but when we're talking about the pandemic, a lot of us have noticed what a pass Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York gets for what he did the 
the terrible things he did, sending COVID-19 patients back into nursing homes and thousands of people died. And here he was on CNN, yucking it up with his brother, Chris Cuomo, uh, Chris Cuomo, who was caught maskless himself. I mean, that kind of blending of media and politician and you add in the dynamic of family. To me, it's typical of CNN, but it's gross in terms of trying to actually hold governors like him accountable. I mean, what do you make of that development? You can now interview your politician family member and just twist everything because he's your brother and haha, this is just a jokey moment for us all. Yeah, it's funny you say, I actually said on Twitter earlier today that, that journalism is the most corrupt field in America. Yes. And it is. And that, that's just, you know, that's just the, the buddy-buddy family incestuous aspect of it. And, you know, even the New York Times called out CNN a little bit about it, how they're uncomfortable about it. But I mean, the, with the giant swab and making nose jokes, meanwhile, six to 11,000 New Yorkers died as a result of this decision. Yeah. And he acts like he didn't do it. In fact, they've been such PR for him that he got an Emmy for his daily briefings, and he is well thought of in public because the press refused to cover him legitimately, refused to hold his feet to the fire. I mean, if you're a Republican and, you know, I mean, look what they do with Lawfer. She actually, some idiot goes up and just gets a photo taken at an event, and and they want to destroy her for it, and she didn't kill anybody. Yeah, but that's how the press handles things. They do. Uh, they they do a combination of what you know. That friend of mine jokingly refers to sins of omission and sins of commission. Right. Yeah. You know, they they you know the things that they include are always spun to the left. The the anger. Oh well, you know this this proposed Biden uh, nominee is awful. And then you look and you realize the only reason to view the person's awful, and that would be near a tendon, is because the far left doesn't like her. Yeah, yeah. And then, then the other stories is, oh, okay, this story, the economy makes Trump look good. Even the New York, I mean, even CNN admitted that Trump won the battle about you know, convincing people about the good economy. But they wouldn't tell you about it. So every time there was good economic news, they, they suppressed it. They, yeah. Even going to the, to the point where going into the election, when the unemployment number dropped to exactly where it was when Obama was reelected. They said, oh, well, it's actually worse than that. And then, of course, it's dropped since then. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, going back to the election, when you look at all this coverage of Biden and Harris, if the Republicans had run a mentally deficient candidate, I think we can all safely say something's off with that man and we feel sorry for him on a human level, Uh, along with Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris, who went on Twitter this week and was talking about how generations of her family grew up in her childhood celebrating Kwanzaa when Kwanzaa wasn't even... A thing until the 80s. I mean, if these people had been Republicans, they would have been skewered, and yet they get away with everything, it would seem. Well, I mean, Harris was, she had no popularity among the Democratic base. No. Except for one, there were two groups. One, people with money, and two, the press. The press loved the Kamala Harris story because she's mixed race, and she's a person of color, she's a woman. They love the whole thing, except, of course, the fact that, you know, nobody really likes her. Right. And, I mean, you know, she, right. was, she was polling at 1% of African-American voters during, during the primary. 1%. I mean, pretty much David Duke could have gotten 1%. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's that bad. But 
you know, did the media talk about that? No, because they wanted her that way. And then, of course, she equally appeals to the elite in Silicon Valley and Wall Street and Hollywood. Yeah, she does. And so when she wears Timberland boots, it's a new fashion trend. But Melania Trump, the fashion model, couldn't get on a decent magazine cover in the four years that her husband was in the White House. It's so unfair. Newsbusters.org, the great Dan Gaynor. Dan, thank you so much and Happy New Year to you. Thank you. Talk to you next year. Sounds good. Thanks a lot. We'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. How often do we quote Jeremiah 29, 11 to remind ourselves that our lives do have meaning in the greater context of God's plans for the world? Well, it's a really important truth to remember, but how do you discover where the Lord wants your life to go and how do you get there? These are important questions we're going to talk about today with Dr. Ron Brown. He's an adjunct professor of leadership and organizational studies at Greenville and Multnomah Universities and has served both as an executive director in Youth for Christ and as an executive pastor. And today we'll be discussing his his book called Courageous Faith. Ron, wonderful to have you with us. How are you doing? Great. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me today. You bet. Uh, doing fine. You say that the key to living a life of significance is uncovering God's inner calling for us and then having the courage to let it move us forward. What are you talking about there when you're referring to an inner calling? Well, I think, you know, again, we have to remind ourselves that we serve a verbal God and he created us for a purpose. And so, you know, part of the journey of really living with faith and living with courageous faith is taking the time to allow God to clarify what he's called you to be and do. And then once you have clarity around that, you know, you really need to wrap it into faith because he usually asks us to turn our life in a new direction. And that's where faith steps into our calling. And thirdly, courage, because when it gets tough, we have to have courage and perseverance to keep pressing through when things might not you know, be going in the right direction, so to speak. Yeah, very true. So when we're talking about an inner calling, though, I know this has been a perennial question for Christians. We'll say, what is it that the Lord wants me to do? I can read in the pages of the Bible how he wants me to behave mm-hmm. and how I am to obey him. But as far as my individual plan, there's been a lot of ink spilled on how in the world you discover that. How do you guide people on how to discover their inner calling and what the Lord wants us to do with our lives? Yeah, that's a great question. And to me, it is a journey. The first thing I coach people on is that you have to be willing to go on a journey with discovering what God has called you to be and do, which means that includes, you know, becoming more self-aware regarding what you're, how he's gifted you, what passions he's given you, um, what opportunities he's given you, but also taking the time to journey his Holy Spirit speaking to you. Mm-hmm. And so all through your childhood, the teenage years, college years, he's been planting seeds regarding um, not only what your gifting is, but what he's called you to do. And so, um, and to me, 
more clarity comes as you start taking steps of faith towards what you think God might be calling you to do. And I say think because God has this uncanny way to, to offer more clarity regarding what he's called you to do after you've taken a few steps. Yes. And yes. so if I feel God's called me to, to um, maybe change my career, go from engineering like I did into a life of ministry, I took some steps in that direction. I didn't, it wasn't for sure God was calling me in that direction, but I felt the prompting. And so I was willing to take a few steps, volunteering, uh, be involved in board, at, at that board or other leadership levels. And God kept confirming that direction. And so I came to the point where, you know, where I just really felt God was asking me to leave my engineering career to go into ministry. So right. it is a journey. Yeah. Oh, it is. And, you know, you you bring up something that's important because sometimes you'll have a big dream or you'll have a big goal. I've seen this with people. They'll talk about what they want to do with their lives. And everyone around them who knows them well is thinking that's not the direction, you know, and sometimes your friends and family are right and sometimes they're wrong. But it is true that you can take steps toward a dream that is not going to be the dream. You know, and then get discouraged and say, now, now what do I do? Should I just give up trying to pursue God's plan for my life? What do you do if you're in that right. situation? You take a couple of steps and it turns out you hit a brick wall. Well, you just have to believe that God's faithful and God's true and his grace is sufficient. I mean, no one through scripture got it perfect. And so we just have to be willing to trust, to trust faith over fear or trust faith in God's voice over potential failure or failure in the past. And so Scripture says, I mean, you know, we need to keep getting up after a, after a perceived failure and just continue the journey of learning to discern God's voice, learning to um, and being willing courageously to step in a new direction if we feel His prompting to do so. But we have to remember, we're going to make some missteps along the way, but God's grace is sufficient. Yep. He's, if I make a step in the wrong direction, feeling... Like this is what God wants me to do, and it's not for whatever reason. His grace is going to cover that. And that's the reassurance and the assurance that we do have from him is that, you know, we're willing to st- take a step of faith. That is what pleases God, yes. not necessarily whether we got it right or wrong. Yeah. Now, do you happen to see a lot of people in your experience who have dreams or have goals, but the reason that they don't move forward on it is because they don't have courage? I mean, is this a big problem, do you see, across the spectrum of people just not moving forward for whatever reason, that they just don't have the wherewithal to do it? Yeah, I, I think so. And here's why. I think we're so enamored and content to stay in our comfort zone that it really takes a step of courage, a step of faith to step away from our current reality, our current Christian world that we've spent years created to follow a prompting to turn our lives in a new direction, to, to do something new. And so, um, you know, I, I see a big deterrence for my opinion, regarding uh, why people hesitate to follow God's prompting is because it's not logical, it doesn't fit their current reality, and um, it, it, this new direction is asking them to step away from their comfort zone. Yeah, yeah. It's and always a tough yeah. reality tough thing to ask a person to do. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, absolutely. It's always hard to leave your comfort zone. How do you know, though, This I'm sure you get this question a lot, how do you know if God is prompting you? 
How do you know God's voice? I mean, is there a way to check it up against the word of God and say, this is definitely the, the way the Lord is moving me? How do you distinguish your own emotions from the Lord's prompting? Yeah, and to me, that's, um, God's not going to ask you to do anything that contra- contra- contradicts his scripture or his clear commands in scripture, obviously. Um, but to me, when God's prompting me, and it's obviously not contrary to scripture in any way, or um, I just sense a small nudging that's consistent over time. And with that nudging, I'm sensing God asking me to step a, take a step of faith without all the information and with all, without all the facts. That's why it takes faith, and that's why it takes courage. And so, and sometimes I've taken a prompting, a step, and like we talked about earlier, it wasn't necessarily exactly the direction he was calling me to go, but he had something to teach me and something to show me, yeah. preparing me for what he, what, you know, what I, what he was going to ask of me down the road, like taking a major career change, um, making a real, you know, courageous shift in my, you know, financial giving or whatever. Yeah. Now, what about these three pillars in the book that you discuss, clarity and courage and perseverance? What are these all about in the context of pursuing God's prompting for your life? Yeah, I think clarity, you know, we've been talking, you know, already about how do we get clarity regarding what God wants us to be and do and where he wants to take our lives. And that's a journey, a lifelong journey. And so in and clarity comes as we continue that journey and not just retreat to our comfort zone. But once we start feeling like we're getting clarity, again, we get more and more clarity after we take steps of faith. And that's sort of the, the way, you know, God <laughs> has orchestrated the journey that, that we on. But, but once we do that, and once we sense a prompting, you know, again, it takes faith to steer our life in a new direction. And uh, look at Hebrews 11. Those are lists of people who are willing to turn their life in a new direction and take a step of faith. And then thirdly, courage is needed because inevitably when we start following the Lord, there's going to be opposition, both, you know, from, from evil spiritual forces and, and maybe from people who just don't understand why we would leave our career to, 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 to do this or whatever because we sense God calling us in a new direction, you know, that takes courage, that takes perseverance. And so, and as we continue the journey, our clarity grows, our faith is emboldened, and our courage grows. That's very important. We're going to take a very quick break. Ron Brown is joining us. Courageous Faith is his book. We'll come right back on Janet Muffer today after this. Did you know that Bible-less believers around the world are praying to receive their very own copy of God's Word? Through the Ministry of Bible League International, you can send those Bibles today. Hear from Meng in Vietnam. If they don't have Bible, how they can find the truth? Because the Bible like a map to bring them to find the truth. And many people, they are really uh, hungry for the Word of God and then they need the Bible. 
Nepo is a pastor in Ghana praying for Bibles for former Muslim radicals now following Christ. Anna was forced into an arranged marriage to an abusive atheist in Albania, but her godly witness changed his heart and now he needs a Bible. Emilio lost everything after his home was burned by terrorists in Mexico, and he's praying for a Bible to share Christ with others. Will you be the answer to these pleas for God's Word? $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and because of a matching gift right now, your gift will be doubled. Call 800 yes word 800 yes word 800 yes word or there's a banner to click at janetmeffer.com the healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states did you miss it don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program sign up for liberty health share as a member of liberty health share you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses you can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month and there are no contracts or commitments Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash change. JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT or 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. All of us really want to know what God's plans are for our lives. And depending on where you are in your life, that may be a bigger question than for some people than others. But this is a very important thing, I think, for every Christian to say, Lord, what do you want me to do with my life? You've said that, you know, the plans that you have for us, but how do I discover those? Ron Brown is with us talking about it and his book, Courageous Faith. Ron, I think a lot of people probably would be curious to know you discussed how you made a big leap in your life and you've moved uh, through different annals in your career and so mm-hmm. forth. But how did this apply, what you're talking about in your book and the advice you're giving to people in your book, how did you work this out in your own life when you were making some of the changes in your own life? Right. That's a great question. I mean, yeah, I write this book from experience. And, I, you know, I graduated with a degree in electrical engineering, master's degree in electrical engineering. Um, but all the while I had this small prompting of God that God was going to shift my life and moving into a more ministry, direct ministry focused um, direction. And so I was working as an engineer, felt this prompting all through those years. I was working in Youth for Christ as a volunteer at different levels of, of lay leadership. And, but all the while, feeling God's asking me to leave my engineering and, and go full time. And I was very hesitant to do so. I, you know, it would be a major financial change for me and my family. I had three kids. And, um, but I, I all of a sudden said, you know, I'd rather follow this prompting of God that I don't have complete clarity about and fail than not follow it and just get more entrenched into, you know, my own leading my life the way I think it should be led. Right. And so I just made the, the step of faith. It was a step of faith without all the answers, without clarity regarding how it's going to play out. I left my engineering career and took a 60 or 70% pay cut, went into Youth for Christ, and was in, in Youth YFC for 25 years. Wow. No regret. Wow. Later on, I feel God calling me to step away from ministry back into vocational ministry. I'm going, why, why would you ever, God, ask me to leave ministry to go back into vocational ministry? And, 
and start a consulting career and, and, and et cetera. But I just felt this prompting, and so I just gave into it, resigned my ministry position without all the information or details about exactly where I was going to go, and um, went back into the secular world for 10 years. And a step of faith that God blessed after I had taken those, you know, t- took those courageous steps in new directions. Yeah. And I'm convinced that as a Christian, God is going to, because he tr- prizes and treasures faith so much, he's going to ask each of us as believers to dismantle our carefully constructed life and to trust him once again, hmm. whether it's our career, whether it's our finances, whatever it might be, and ask us to deconstruct and allow him to reconstruct that reality in a whole new, in a whole new direction in a whole new space. Well, and that takes a lot of courage to leave a career behind and go into ministry. I mean, it's one thing if you're going from ministry into a secular job and your paycheck's going up. It's another thing when it's going down and you have a family. And I know a lot of people have been in that position. What about some of the biblical characters who have gone through this? You know, you mentioned men like the Apostle Paul when you're discussing the cost of a faith that leaves marks. And you can think of a lot of people in the Bible who had to really trust the Lord. Hebrews 11, obviously, uh, the the Hall of Fame of those who trusted God. Uh, who do you look at in Scripture as maybe an inspiration in this regard in in trusting the Lord, even though He didn't know what was ahead? Well, to me, there's a few, but one on top of my list is Abraham. You know, God just said, "Leave, yep. leave your home com- country," and He God and Abraham had to be willing to obey to leave without knowing where He was going. You know, that's to total faith and boldness and courage, whatever you want to call it. So, right. and then continually, you know, just um, Abraham's journey of faith, going here, going there. And then, of course, you have Moses who who reluctantly, you know, felt called directly, clearly to lead the people of Moses, lead the people of Israel, and and um, change the whole direction of his life to do so, to be obedient and walk into a lot of unknowns, <laughs> you know, in doing that. And so... Um, then you have, you know, all the the apostles who left careers to follow Christ, and um, and then those in the church and in the, in the early church who left careers to uh, to advance the kingdom of God. Right. And and each of those stories include a feeling that they should do this, and number two, steps that you know obedience to that feeling without all the information, without all the facts. And then God blessing at hindsight. How important is it, do you think, Ron, to have other people on board as you are taking that step? Because, for example, if you're going to go on the mission field and your wife says, I'm not called, I don't want to go, you know, then you've got a bit of an issue because you're saying, well, if we really are called to the mission field, then you have to be called and I have to be called. These kinds of things crop up from time to time. Somebody who's a naysayer, how do you handle the naysayers if you are very convinced, no, this is what the Lord wants me to do? How do you handle that? That's a great question, especially if it involves your spouse. I think that's a very unique relationship that's sort of different. You know, you know, God's called you to honor your spouse. And so I think that takes, you know, prayer, a lot of discussion, maybe some counseling together just to really discern and help your spouse to to understand what, what this calling is about. And that and I've I've you know, I've known individuals and marriages who have gone through that journey, some who slowly get there and the, and the calling truly becomes mutual because they've been patient 
yep. and really allowing God's Spirit to move in both hearts, and some where they never came together, and you just sort of trust God with what that means. But when God calls you, He's not calling people to agree with His calling regarding what He's calling you to. Now, I think there's special, like we talk about the spouses, which are unique, but in general, He doesn't, He's not calling your extended friends and family to agree with what he's asked you to do. He's asking you to go True. and you to take a step in a new direction. And so um, it needs to align with scripture. I think your spouse, of course, is needs to be on board, but that's, that's pretty, it's a pretty short list. You know, God trumps your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your parents. You know, I, when I moved into full-time ministry, my parents weren't on, on board. My spouse was 100%. My brothers were not on board. A lot of my friends didn't understand why I would leave a lucrative career in engineering. But three, four, five years old, later, you know, they were all major supporters in, in the ministry. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's important because sometimes you do have to move forward with people around you not understanding or not not being behind you. And I think that's a really important point when you really have the sense that the Lord is calling you to do it, then the mm-hmm. Lord is calling you to do it. You have to put that in right. perspective. And, and that's that's really vital. Something else that you said, I, I think is really interesting. You said to fail or even die trying to step out in faith is more important and noble than to ignore what God God is calling us toward and mm-hmm. live. So this is, you're saying it would seem that obedience is more important than success. Correct. And in Hebrews 11 is a clear example of this. You had people who obeyed God's promptings and, and their heads were cut off. They were, they were pulled into, they, they were, they were martyred. And from an earthly perspective, they weren't successful, quote unquote, but from a kingdom perspective, they were, they were exactly in God's place. And um, that's why God's calling for our life isn't always logical yeah. from our perspective or from, or from the perspective of our friends and family. Look at, you know, all the callings we, of, of individuals we see through Scripture, I don't see the mass crowds around them applauding that change. Mm-hmm. They had to step alone. They had to be willing to go against, you know, what, the people around them probably thought was best. They're willing, willing to courageously step outside their comfort zone and journey into the unknown. You know, that's, yes. that's the way God works. Yeah. You know, it, and um, it's, it, you know, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And faith, let's be honest, is not easy. No. No, and we're constantly praying, as you say, Lord, increase our faith. I mean, we we need to say that every single day. And really, if you look at how the Lord's life ended, that could have looked like a colossal failure if you just stayed Mm. on the day that he was crucified and you saw him being killed on the cross as a common criminal. It was three days later that God's plan became obvious to everybody. And that's, you know, on a smaller scale, that's true for us all and important for us to keep in mind. Well, the Mm -hmm. name of the book is, yeah, the name of the book is Courageous Faith by Dr. Ron Brown. It's been so nice to have you, Ron. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate our time together. You bet. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for joining us as always here on Janet Meffer today. It's always a delight to have you along. I hope you can join us for the very next broadcast. Until then, God bless.
This hour has been brought to you by Preborn. Help us save 350 babies' lives by the end of January through a gift of one free ultrasound. $28 saves one life. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com.